Father, our hearts are so encouraged as we sing these words of praise as a prayer to you. That indeed, Lord, your mercy is greater than all our sin. Not so that we could take advantage of it, but so we could delight in it, be motivated by it, and our hearts would forever sing your praise. Lord, we come to you as people who are sinners. We've broken your law. We're under condemnation, and there is no hope. No hope outside of you. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have life that never ends. For that we give you praise. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He was an amazingly talented animator and cartoonist. Born in 1913, he actually only lived to be 60 years old. In the late 1930s, he worked for Walt Disney and worked on such movies as Fantasia, Pinocchio, Dumbo, very gifted. He then transferred to Dell Comics and that's where Walt Kelly became famous. Walt Kelly began to develop a cartoon called Pogo. Pogo was a possum And with a collection of anthropomorphic animals, they lived together in the Okefenokee Swamp, which I think is supposed to be in Georgia. This comic, think of this, was syndicated in newspapers for 26 years. And his work produced over 20 books. And it was his platform for his own personal, social, and political commentary on the times. It was on the very first Earth Day that he developed a poster of Pogo standing in the swamp filled with garbage and trash that people had left. And he had this byline, as you see on the screen, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. I'm not sure that he originated that, but he certainly popularized that statement. We have met the enemy, and the enemy is us. Now, that is often true in the social realm, that man is his own worst enemy, and that we do things not only to our environment, but to the people around us with the way we live that causes all kinds of problems. Mankind can't quite seem to get it together. But when you're talking about the spiritual realm, this is very true. We've met the enemy, and the enemy is us. That's exactly what Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 7. You can open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. But just to remind you, when we were in Romans chapter 7, it was kind of a almost a blow-by-blow account, uh, like a boxer in the ring fighting with someone, losing 
his match. The ringside announcer is giving us every uh, blow by blow of this grim struggle. We are the boxer and in us is indwelling sin. And when you read Romans 7, it really seems like we're losing. It's kind of like the boxer who went to the corner during, uh, uh, between rounds and he said uh, he was just wiped out and his trainer said to him, hang in there, he hasn't laid a glove on you yet. To which the boxer said, well then you better watch the referee because someone is beating the life out of me. And that's sometimes how we feel at the end of Romans 7. Someone, something is beating the life out of me. We have three enemies, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And that is what Paul describes in chapter 7 with this ongoing battle with the flesh. So in verse 18 of chapter 7, we read, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I have seen the enemy, and I'm the enemy. And so he ends up with this grand lament in verse 24 of chapter 7. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And that's the great cry of humanity deep down in the soul. Who will rescue me? from death and bondage to it, who will deliver me? The note of hope is given in 725. Thanks be to God who rescues us or delivers us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he announces this wonderful victory in a quick turn of events as though there was a knockout blow and somehow we're going to win this match. God steps in and rescues us. And Romans chapter eight makes it abundantly clear that it is the triune God who steps in and rescues us. God with all of his power and all of his wisdom and all of his love and all of his mercy steps in to rescue fallen man. And the result is Romans 8 verse 1, this thunderous declaration. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For a while there, we didn't think chapter 7 was going to end that way. And I really believe that chapter 7 is the experience of even a godly believer who is fighting with the remaining sin in his soul or in his heart, in his life. But there is something about experiencing the power of the Spirit. As we come into chapter 8, the Spirit takes center stage. But this is where we start. No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation implies that there was. A message that this world does not want to grasp or entertain is the fact that we are condemned. But our death sentence has been commuted 
all of our offenses expunged, removed, erased. There is now no condemnation. There never will be any condemnation. There never can be any condemnation because God has rescued us. And we should never forget it. Rescued by the great mercy of God. The word no in verse one is quite a strong negative. It actually comes from two Greek words that literally mean no, not one. Which just intensifies the negative. Absolutely not. There is none whatsoever. No condemnation over us. So why do you live in condemnation? Why do you condemn yourself? Why are you so quick to condemn others who are in Christ but may not be doing things that you necessarily appreciate? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We love to quote John 3.16 as I did a moment ago, but never forget what follows after it. There was once a Christian who was quoting John 3.16 to a non-believer, and the non-believer said, you people are always quoting John 3.16. What's in John 3.17? He thought he would stump him with such a question, and the man said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. And the one who believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. He came to save the world and whoever believes is not condemned. That section in John chapter three is so, so wonderful. And then the portion that Pastor Doug read a moment ago from the end of Romans eight tells us where all of this is going. You come to verse 33. Who then is the one who is condemned? No one, for Christ has died. More than that, he was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and intercessing for us. So the no one refers to those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the rest of verse one, isn't it? There is no condemnation for anyone, no, for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're beyond the reach of condemnation. The devil is still grasping for you, but he cannot get to you because you are safe in Christ. There's a beautiful illustration, is there not, in the Old Testament book of Genesis when God determined to send floods upon the earth and ordered Noah to build an ark. And the Bible tells us that he and his family, once they were in the ark, they were safe from the judgment waters that fell all around them. There was no condemnation to those in the ark of safety. Or that night in Egypt when the death angel was coming through to kill the firstborn of every family. But the Jews were instructed to put blood on the door from a Passover lamb. The word Passover comes from this whole event. Blood on the door from a lamb. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will 
pass over that home and the person inside will not die. And you are just as safe in Jesus Christ as Noah's family was in the ark as that firstborn of, of Israel in their home with the blood on the door. There's no condemnation. Isn't it sad when we don't live up to our birthright? Isn't it sad when such a beautiful, wonderful, amazing theological concept like this doesn't dominate our soul? When we forget it and live under condemnation. You say, Pastor, but I continue to sin. That's what Romans 7 is telling us. And even in Romans 8, it will be mentioned again. But there is victory because of the work of Christ, the work of the triune God. In fact, notice, first of all, this rescue work is the work of Christ. That's verse 1. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The work of Christ will be detailed again in verse three and four. But now secondly, this rescue work is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is verse two. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin, which brings death, the law of sin and death. So you have two great blessings that are mentioned here, no condemnation and being set free from the dominance of sin, which leads to death. Two great laws as well. The law of the spirit, which brings life, and the law of sin, which results in death. And one of those two laws dominate you and control you, affect the way you live, and determine where you will go after you die. Now the Jewish audience that Paul was writing to and speaking to, they were very familiar that when Messiah would arrive, there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was mentioned in uh, the prophet Joel and others. And now Jesus is the one who is saying there is a law of the Spirit. By the way, the word law is used three different times in this section. Here, it simply is talking about a principle. The law of the Spirit is the truth, the principle that is at work because of the Holy Spirit. It's like the principle of gravity that we often call a law. And this reference to the Holy Spirit is the life-giving spirit. That might be the best translation of it. So when it talks about the law of the Spirit who gives life, he is the life-giving spirit. Sometimes the emphasis in word order alerts our mind to one of the most important aspects of the truth. The Spirit gives life. The law produces death. Paul speaks interchangeably throughout the scriptures of the Spirit being the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God and then sometimes independently the Holy Spirit. 
And that's because God is three in one. We don't have time to explain that. There isn't enough time in the world to explain that. But it is true. And we see it here in this passage. So the spirit then, who has a different task from the father and the son, is at work in rescuing us and he comes to us with amazing power. The Hebrew word for spirit and the Greek word for spirit mean wind or maybe more accurately, air or wind in motion. Sometimes it's breath, sometimes it's wind, but it always seems to be moving and active. It is the animating breath at creation. God created man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That's the work of the spirit. It is the spirit who breathed into the prophets, Ezekiel tells us, to proclaim the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit who came down on the church in Pentecost and with a great and mighty wind breathed into people a new order with the spirit in our hearts and all of us collectively as one. Uh, the Greek word for spirit is pneumata, and that's where we get the English word pneumatics. And it's interesting, it's often used in the realm of construction. You have pneumatic tools, right? You know what an air tool is? Using the same Greek word, this idea of air, with power. So you can compress the air and it has unbelievable power to raise huge objects. You have an air gun you can nail all day. Um, the, the power of these tools, a jackhammer, is nothing more than a pneumatic hammer, and it can tear apart the earth. It was just a few weeks ago, August 24, when we had a great pneumatic demonstration <laughs> of the power of the wind. I mean, isn't it amazing? I've never seen so many trees pulled up, ripped out, torn off, cars flipped by the wind. Think about the power of the God who created the wind. Oh, the Holy Spirit is a powerful force. And what I could not do in seeking to live a life that pleases God, there's the law of the Spirit that takes over who now enables me with unbelievable power to do things I never could do. That's the law of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is God's powerful, creative presence in the life in the church. It is interesting that before Romans chapter eight, the Holy Spirit is mentioned but five times. After Romans chapter eight, the Holy Spirit is mentioned about nine times. But in chapter eight, the Holy Spirit is mentioned over 20 times. I would call that emphasis. Don't forget. The Spirit rescues you and I. And we cannot live without the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, is the one who convicts us of sin. 
It's the Holy Spirit who eliminates our hearts to understand spiritual truth that we never understood before because we were dead. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, gives to us life, the life of God that Adam had before the fall and a new life that will give us life forevermore. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter eight, verse six. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life, peace. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And Romans eight will also say, if the spirit is not in you, you don't belong to Jesus. So the Spirit is not something we get at a later date in in some amazing service. The Holy Spirit comes to us at our birth as a seal of our redemption to empower us to do what God wants us to do. Utterly amazing. And the law of the Spirit supersedes the law of sin. The Spirit gives life, sin gives death. That's all the way the law always works. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Sin and the law always work together. In our world, one law can supersede another. I don't understand it, but the law of gravity is overcome by aeronautics, right? The way the wind goes over the wing of a plane and nature abhors a vacuum and all of that works together to lift up this metal thing with hundreds of people in it and which weighs an enormous amount. And aren't you amazed that that ever gets off the ground? Biggest plane I was ever in, I was in the second story. It was that big. Come into the plane and hear the stairs and you go upstairs. And I was so high up looking down. You know, I believe that planes can fly, but that day I questioned it. (laughs) And yet there was a law that supersedes this law of gravity. Well, there's a law that supersedes the law of sin and death, that you must sin and your sin leads you to death. It's the law of the spirit who gives life. And when that spirit lives in you, you begin to really live. The one who doesn't have the spirit in them cannot say no to sin. It's only the person who has the spirit in them who can say yes to Christ, no to sin. It's interesting, when Paris was liberated in 1944 by the Allies, city of Paris and the Nazis lost their power and control, there was still much of France that was under the control of the Nazis. But the capital had been taken and the mopping up operation to go through the rest of the nation would take a while, but eventually it would happen. Our capital has been taken over by the Holy Spirit. 
There's some mop-up operation going on until we die. That's Romans 7, because sin still remains in us. But we belong to Christ, and the victory has been won. And we need to live in the power of that victory. So, the rescue work is the work of Christ, it's the work of the Spirit, and finally, it is the work of God the Father. Look at verse three. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Now notice it doesn't say the law was weak, intrinsically weak. The law is holy, just, and good. But the law was powerless to save us because of the weakness of our flesh. The law is very good at telling you you're a sinner, but it gives you no power and no desire to overcome it. In fact, the law makes things worse. The law stirs up sin in us that we didn't even know we had. Oh, the law cannot save. It's powerless to save. It's weak. It it offers a proper diagnosis, but gives no cure. The weakness is in our own flesh. Because we're sinful flesh, we cannot keep the law. That is, the sinful natures in our heart. We cannot keep the law. And because we cannot keep the law, we cannot be saved by the law. It's just that simple. Think of it. If you're working in a garden and you have a shovel, a wooden handle, metal shovel on the end, and you're digging a hole... Um, in putting pressure on that shovel, it's possible that the handle could break. The wooden handle is weak, weaker than the metal shovel. The problem is not with the shovel, it's with the weakness of the wood, per se. Only the wooden handle is weak. And so it's not the fact that the law is bad, it's good and holy, but we are weak and sinful and trying to use the law, we break down and we cannot accomplish our own salvation. Because of that, the law just says condemned. The law says you don't measure up. The law says you're lost. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and has his own poetry in that book, once said concerning the law, to run and work the law commands, but neither gives me feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. No, we cannot save ourselves, but God can. I I love verse three, what the law could not do God did what the law could not do. God does. The emphasis is on God's initiative. And here's the heart of the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's always been this way. His plan of salvation began before the foundations of the earth. Salvation is God's work. 2 Corinthians 5, God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God Almighty is the one who plans it. God Almighty in his 
triunity, triunity is the one who accomplishes it. Human theology says do something for God. A socialistic kind of religion says do something for others. That's why you're here. Modern psychology says do something for yourself. The gospel says God has done something for you. You know, whatever I do, I do imperfectly. If you're a perfectionist, that drives you crazy. Your best efforts never measure up even to your own standard. But if God does it, it's perfect. And that's where our faith and trust need to be. Notice, God did this by sending his own son. Emphasize that word own, his own son. Because in the Bible, angels are called sons of God and believers are called sons of God, children of God. But this is his own son. We are not his own, we're adopted. And we belong to him, but only Christ is the only begotten of the Father. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the one and only. John 3.16, same thing, his only begotten son. Hebrews chapter one, in the past, God spoke to us, to our ancestors through the prophets in various ways, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And then he goes on to show that there's no one like him, not in the angelic world, not in the priestly world. There is no one like Jesus. He's our powerful savior. He said, I and the Father are one. He didn't become a son of God. Jesus always was the eternal son of God and God sent his son. That's how it's going to happen. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Be careful about that. He didn't send Jesus in sinful flesh. It's not the flesh itself that's sinful, the body. And Jesus never sinned. Nor did God send Jesus in the likeness of flesh. Because Hebrews makes it abundantly clear he became a man with the same human flesh that we have, yet without sin. And that's the difference. Born as a child as any other child would be born, except without a human father and without sin. So it becomes a sin offering. And notice the last part of verse three. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. We are not condemned, sin is condemned. The law is not condemned. It's acknowledged as weak because we're sinners, but sin in us is condemned. It's a real delusion to think that what people need today is just a better model or more education. No, what we need is a rescue. From condemnation and damnation, we need to be rescued. And the rescue plan has been put together by the Son and the Spirit and the Father. 
He rescues us. He does what the law could not do. And why does he do it? Well, chapter eight, or chapter five, verse eight told us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to demonstrate his love for us. When you're playing sports, sometimes the coach will see that you're rather lackadaisical in your approach. Sometimes we, the fans, can see that the players have already given up. And the coach will often say something like this, put yourself into it. Do you know what that means? It means put all of yourself into it. Everything you've got, put your whole body, soul, spirit, strength into it. And that's exactly what God did. He put himself into it to rescue us by sending his son and his spirit. He did it because of love. And there's a second reason. We see it in verse 4. He did it because of holiness. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Wait a minute. I thought we were done with the law. This whole section that started out way back in, uh, in chapter 7 where it talks about us being freed from the law, like a woman whose husband dies is free to remarry, and now we can marry another. I thought we were free from the law, and now you're saying that we're obligated to the law. That sounds like a contradiction. It really isn't. We're free from the law as a way to salvation, but we are not free from the law as a way of life. The law is good and holy because it represents the character of God. And if I'm going to walk in a holy manner, I'm going to follow the law. But I can't do it. Until God says, let me give you another law. It's the law of the Spirit. And you walk according to the Spirit and you'll have power to supersede the law of sin, the law of the flesh. Paul does not say one must keep the law to be saved, but that one must be saved to keep the law. You can't do it on your own. Impossible. Augustine said the law is given that grace might be sought. Show us our need. And grace is given that the law might be fulfilled in us. That's what Paul is saying. Holiness is righteousness, according to verse 4, that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us. Holiness is the work of the Spirit as we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the law is fulfilled in us only when the Spirit is in control. So it's a battle still. James Edwards says that a Christian is like a a person who has the right tune in their head, but they cannot remember all the words. I've got this desire to love God and follow his word, but I don't do it perfectly. But part of the new covenant mentioned back in Jeremiah 31 said that I will give them new hearts and I will give them my spirit and I will write their law, my law on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And when you are rescued, never forget this, when you are rescued, you are forever grateful. 
If you were drowning one time and going down for the third time with no power or strength to help you and some person dove into the water, grabbed hold of you, brought you to the top, swam with you all the way to the boat or the shore, and you lived, don't you think you would be grateful for the rest of your life? You and I have been rescued from damnation and condemnation. Don't you think we ought to live gratefully? And it's not what we do, it's what God has done. Many years ago, the famous evangelist D.L. Moody was leaving Chicago on a train for the West Coast and he was on his way to Salt Lake City. The engineer of the train was a Mormon and he heard that Moody, the famous evangelist, was on board. So he asked the conductor to bring Moody to his compartment. He would like to talk with D.L. Moody and D.L. Moody gladly responded. So the two began to talk. The engineer did his best to convert Moody into a Mormon. I need another M in there, don't I? Convert Moody into a Mormon, but he didn't succeed. In Salt Lake, there was going to be a change of engineers, and so he said to D.L. Moody, I've got to leave you now, but you know, I, I really wish you be, would become a Mormon. You'd, become, you'd be a great Mormon preacher, and I pray that you will. And Moody said, you know, I could never be a Mormon. But there is, in one sense, just a slight difference between your religion and mine. The engineer was interested. What does that mean? Moody said, well, you spell your religion D-O, do. If I do enough, I can earn heaven. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It's already finished. When Christ died on the cross, he said it is finished. All that we need to be saved has been done. So do all you want and you'll never do enough. Trust Christ who's done everything and you will not be condemned. Let's pray. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, Godlike and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and so free? Father, work in hearts today. Some people here don't know Jesus. Show them the glove of God that sent Jesus to the cross for their sin. And may they trust him. Many believers here today live under condemnation without freedom, without joy, without gratitude. May all of us see as believers once again the great work of salvation that has been done by the triune God so that we could be rescued. In his name we pray, amen.